Donald Trump is officially served by the January 6th committee with the subpoena for his documents and testimony. His lawyer, Alina Haba, says he will appear or he should appear. But the question is, will he? I don't think so. MAGA extremist Kelly Ward, who is chair of the Arizona Republican Party, filed an emergency application with the Supreme Court to stay and block turning over her T-Mobile phone records to the January 6th committee after her appeal to the Ninth Circuit was denied. Justice Elena Kagan, an Obama appointee, though just granted a temporary stay, this just happened, uh, for her to turn over records, blocking the enforcement of the subpoena, that is, until the January 6th committee responds. A little surprising, but I'll explain why I think this was done. But it's only temporary. The January 6th committee is going to respond, and I think ultimately Kelly Ward's attempt to block it is going to be denied. Mark Meadows, former chief of staff to Donald Trump, was ordered to testify before the Fulton County Special Grand Jury. Boy, do these people just not want to talk about what happened on January 6th. And he was ordered to appear in Fulton County by his local court in South Carolina. What's up, Pickens County? And the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which granted that temporary injunction last week in that lawsuit filed by Nebraska and the other GOP-led states, which has temporarily blocked the Biden administration from discharging the student debt under the cancellation program. Well, it's now received all briefs, received the briefing from the Department of Justice and from the Republican states. and a big ruling which will impact the future and fate of the student debt cancellation program could drop at any moment now. I am Ben Micellis, and this is Legal AF. I'm doing it solo today. My co-hosts, Michael Popak and Karen Friedman-Agnifilo, are both out there being real lawyers. They're preparing for trials, and they've got depositions that they're working on. Um, So I'm here with you solo, and in honor of doing this solo with you all, I'm going to take some questions today from you at the end of this podcast, at the end of the show. We will do a Q&A session where I will try to answer your legal questions. I will try not to be long-winded, as my younger brother Jordy said today. If that's how you're going to answer each and every question, Ben, we were doing a Q&A on our Patreon uh, account. If you're going to answer every question that long, we are never going to finish this. We've got 300 Q&A questions that we got around that on our Patreon account. And while I mention it, you should check out our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Midas Touch support independent media like this. But it is an honor and privilege to do this show solo with you, although I know you love Popak and Karen Agnifilo. So let's get right into the first topic, which is Donald Trump has been officially served with that January 6th committee subpoena. Uh, It calls for the documents to be turned over on November 4th. It calls for his personal appearance for a deposition testimony. We've got it pulled up right on the screen right now for our YouTube viewers, the actual subpoena. Uh, Calls for his in-person deposition testimony, November uh, 14th. And his lawyer, Alina Haba, went on one of these right-wing networks 
the other night. And she was asked, well, what should he do? Will he testify? And Alina Habba says, well, she recommends that he does testify. I think we have the footage, so let's play that clip. He's got a couple options here. He can ignore the subpoena and maybe run into Bannon world, or he can go and plead the fifth, or he can go and, and testify. Any idea what you think he's going to do and what would you recommend? I would recommend that he cooperate because when you have nothing to hide, that's what I always recommend. The same reason that he always uh, comes out and, and speaks on any of my cases. He um, has no issue being deposed, even though the left wing media would like to pretend that he does. He has no issue being subpoenaed and answering questions about what happened that day. And, and he shouldn't. Um, what he did was very public and it, it was really nothing um, other than to say to uh, go out peacefully, as we know. Um, what? I so who picked it up there? Who picked up what was really going on there? And I know some of you probably the light bulbs going off, but let me show you what's going on there. First off, Alina Habba's wrong about literally everything. Like she's literally the worst lawyer ever. I mean, I mean, like like literally the worst lawyer. Like she's she's worth it, worse than that Jenna Ellis who got farted on by Rudy Giuliani, like like by far. Um, and that's how bad she is. But did you notice what she said? So she is not the lawyer on this case. It's actually another lawyer, a law firm out of California that's representing Donald Trump in connection with the subpoena. So she said, in my cases, when you've got nothing to hide, he testifies in those cases. Because if you've got nothing to hide, but it was about my cases. So one of the things that I think is going on there, and it was subtle and it happened just for a second, but she's not the lawyer on that case. And Trump's actually hired a, a fairly more serious law firm out in uh, California, a firm that I, I know the work that um, they do, clearly showing that he's worried about this subpoena. And that law firm has already been very critical of the January 6th committee and critical of the underlying subpoena. But for Alina Haba, she feels like she should be the lawyer on that case. But you know, the one thing that it's hard for me to even actually articulate this, but I agree with Alina Habba. If you got nothing to hide on January 6th, what are you doing? Just go and testify. I mean, that's the thing. As we talk about some of these other uh, cases today, like when we talk about Kelly Ward, the chair of the Arizona Republican Party, you talk about Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff. You talk about Lindsey Graham, a senator from South Carolina. These individuals who want to talk a big game at the rallies and social media and Fox, when they're confronted in a court of law with answering basic questions truthfully, which the answers in normal course should be very basic. Why in the world would a South Carolina senator have anything to do with Georgia state proceedings? Because he's an utter criminal because he's interfering with the election, because he shouldn't be there. That's why he is running away. And how cowardly can you be? And then you got Kelly Ward, the chair of the Arizona Republican Party, interfering with the results there. Mark Meadows was basically like the central hub for like all the insurrectionists who were sending him messages and was basically the, the fall guy. But you have these people who should be just, the answer should be, what'd you do there? Nothing. I did nothing. January 6th, day of the certification, I didn't do anything. But yet they inextricably intertwined themselves in this insurrection conduct. And now they are 
you know, everything Trump touches dies and they are, you know, all, you know, in the line of fire right now. But we at Midas Touch, we did a video um, because we agree with Alina Habba there. He should testify unless, of course, Donald Trump is scared. I mean, is he scared? Is, 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 he, is, is he a scaredy cat? Anyway, let's play the video that we just produced at Midas Touch. Play this new video that we did called Trump is Scared. What's the matter, Donald? The January 6th committee subpoenaed you and you're not going to show? You said you're such a strong man. You aren't a coward, are you? You aren't guilty, are you? Are you that afraid of Liz Cheney? They say you threw hamburgers at the wall. Well, your supporters know you would never waste a good hamburger. Oh, please. Won't you come testify, Donald? Unless you're scared. Midas Touch is responsible for the content of this advertising. That was a video produced by our uh, political action committee arm. It's so good and so true. And, you know, ultimately, that's what uh, that's why whether you're a Democrat or Republican, whatever. I mean, these insurrectionist criminals are also just cowards. You know, and I think back to when Hillary Clinton was caused was called before that ridiculous Benghazi committee and she sat there for 12 hours didn't plead the fifth once, answered each and every one of those questions. That right there is courage, but you're the secretary of state too. Like we expect them to be courageous. You know, she was, she rose to the moment, but that was also the role. These people, the Trumps and the Meadows and the, and the Kelly Wards and the, and the, all these people, they're cowards who should never have been in these positions in the first place. They are weak, they are cowards, and they are traitors. And speaking of weak, coward, and traitor, MAGA extremist Kelly Ward, the chair of the Arizona Republican Party, filed an emergency application with the Supreme Court to block turning over her phone records. She desperately, desperately does not want to turn over these T-Mobile phone records. But here's the thing. With these records, it's not even the actual text messages. It's the metadata. So literally all the messages that the January 6th committee could receive through this subpoena lists the phone numbers, uh, the who it's from and who it's to, who's the sender, who's the recipient, when the call took place, and how long the call was. And so she filed a lawsuit in the district court of Arizona at first, and she said, I'm the chair of the Republican Party in Arizona. I have a First Amendment right to have these private communications and to not have the government intervene because it would chill these political activities that I engage in or chill political membership activities. And so you, Arizona District Court, must impose an exacting standard of review that only if there is a compelling need and only if the subpoena is narrowly tailored can this exacting standard be met and the uh, January 6th committee get these records. And the department and, and the court, uh, the district court judge of Arizona said, well, absolutely there is a compelling need for the January 6th committee to get these records. There was an insurrection 
that took place. And that is a compelling need for them to investigate the sources of the insurrection, what caused it, your role in it. Also, Kelly Ward, you pled the Fifth Amendment. You took the Fifth Amendment. And in this proceeding, unlike a criminal case, by you asserting the Fifth Amendment, it is an adverse inference that you engaged in unlawful conduct or you engaged in misconduct here because when they tried to call you and, and use less intrusive means than subpoenaing your phone records, you refused to testify and you took the Fifth Amendment to each and every question. So she appealed the ruling by the district court where she lost and she appealed it first to the Ninth Circuit uh, court of Appeals. Uh, there was a uh, Trump appointee on there, a George W. Bush appointee on there, and a Clinton appointee on there. And in a 2-1 decision, they denied Kelly Ward's uh, relief that she was seeking uh, to block turning over her records. And they went through that analysis I went through. I mean, first they said the exacting First Amendment scrutiny standard here uh, doesn't apply because we're not talking about anything that would chill political speech. We're talking about the January 6th insurrection. This is not like the January 6th committee subpoenaed like membership roles of the Republican Party. These are It's a narrowly tailored subpoena about people who you spoke with relating to the insurrection. And so it shouldn't be this exacting standard. But even if you applied a strict scrutiny, exacting scrutiny standard uh, under a First Amendment analysis, there's clearly a compelling interest here for you to turn over these records and the subpoena is narrowly tailored. Um, in response to losing with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, uh, uh, Kelly Ward filed a motion uh, with the Supreme Court and in her motion to the Supreme Court, we have it pulled up right there, she asked for an emergency application of the Supreme Court to block her having to turn over uh, these records. Um, and we've, we've had these conversations before here on Legal AF and on the Midas Touch Network that the different Supreme Court justices are assigned to supervise various circuit courts. So each Supreme Court justice is a supervising judge as well of a circuit court who hears emergency applications. And emergency application should be so rarely, rarely given. And it's different than the normal process in which the Supreme Court hears cases. And the way the Supreme Court normally gets a case in front of it is it has a final judgment. And after the final judgment is appealed to the, the higher court, the Court of Appeals, a certiorari petition, a petition for certiorari or cert, is filed with the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court can accept or deny certiorari in that specific case. And they like deny it in like 97% of the cases. It is so rare that the Supreme Court take a case. That's how cases are normally heard. And then they're heard in a specific term of the Supreme Court, and there's full briefing, there's full oral argument. But there's been this other process that's always been allowed, but it's been utilized more under the Roberts court than it ever has before. And that's why it's often referred to as the shadow docket, where there are these emergency applications 
that are filed to specific circuit court, uh, to the specific Supreme Court justice who is assigned to a circuit court. And only rarely should these emergency applications ever be granted, but more frequently, the Supreme Court justices have been granting emergency applications, which has been referred to as the shadow docket, which actually in many cases has a substantive effect and has like a real outcome. And so in addition uh, to the shadow docket, um, the cases are normally supposed to be heard through the certiorari process. In this specific instance, the case was heard, uh, was filed through this emergency application process. And the Supreme Court justice who oversees the Ninth Circuit uh, is Justice Elena Kagan. And so, for example, with the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal, the justice who oversees that is Clarence Thomas. And so that's why Clarence Thomas was the one who heard the Mar-a-Lago search warrant case after Trump lost in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. He filed an emergency application to Clarence Thomas there. And when Lindsey Graham lost in the 11th Circuit and he was compelled to have to testify before the Fulton County uh, Special Grand Jury investigating the election interference, he had to appeal on an emergency basis to Clarence Thomas, who oversees uh, the 11th Circuit emergency applications. Here we have Justice Elena Kagan, an Obama appointee, um, and she's the one who hears it. Uh, so normally we would think, well, Justice Elena Kagan would just reject this outright, um, or that she'll definitely reject this outright. I mean, here you have a case where it involves the insurrection. You have Kelly Ward, who was inextricably involved in the insurrection. You have an Obama appointee. Um, there's no way that she's going to actually help out Kelly Ward here. And so there was a headline today, though, that Justice Elena Kagan temporarily blocked or temporarily stayed the House January 6th committee subpoena for these phone records. But here's the thing. This is only temporary. What happens next is the January 6th committee has been ordered to respond. They are going to respond. And what I believe Justice Elena Kagan is doing here is that she just wants to be fair. She understands that we're dealing with issues of significant import. We're dealing with issues regarding the January 6th insurrection. Um, you had Clarence Thomas also request full briefing in the Donald Trump Mar-a-Lago search warrant matter, where he ordered the Department of Justice to fully brief the issue. In the Lindsey Graham matter, the Fulton County District Attorney has to fully brief that issue before Clarence Thomas. And so I think Elena Kagan is just looking at that and says, look, we got to go through the motions. I want to hear from the January 6th committee. I don't just want to you know, reject this emergency application outright. I don't want to be accused of this being like so political that look, an Obama appointee just rejected it, which it shouldn't be. It should be following the law. And so she's saying, look, I'm going to temporarily block the enforcement of the subpoena. We're going to have a very short response date for the January 6th committee respond. And then I'm going to make my ruling. That's all that happened there. And when you think about it, it's actually not too different than what Justice Clarence Thomas did uh, earlier this week with respect to Lindsey Graham. And now you'll recall that Lindsey Graham is like desperately trying not to testify before this Fulton County 
uh, special grand jury that's doing the criminal investigation of 2020 election interference. And Lindsey Graham has invoked the speech and debate clause and says that he was just engaged in legitimate legislative functions and activity. That's why he was calling Brad Raffensperger and telling him to uh, overturn the actual votes in a free and fair election. And the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals uh, rejected that argument and said, no, that's not legitimate legislative activity. The Fulton County Grand Jury can question you on three topics. They could question you on whether or not, Lindsey Graham, you exhorted, cajoled, or basically engaged in undue uh, pressure or extortion or criminal conduct, trying to tell Brad Raffensperger, the state secretary of state, to overturn the results of the election. Lindsey Graham, your communications with Donald Trump are not subject to any legislative speech and debate clause immunity, and any of the statements you made to the press are not subject to any speech and debate clause immunity. So all of that is fair game. Um, and Lindsey Graham, desperately not wanting to testify before the Fulton County Special Grand Jury, ran to the Supreme Court the same way Kelly Ward did. And what happened there is Clarence Thomas also granted on a temporary basis a stay from the Fulton County Grand Jury enforcing that subpoena the same way in the Ninth Circuit that I just talked about with Kelly Ward. There's a stay from enforcing the subpoena for T-Mobile records. But just like there's a stay for the T-Mobile records pending the January 6th committee's response, uh, it's the same thing in the 11th Circuit. It's pending the response of the Fulton County District Attorney, Fawny Willis, and her response is due October 27th. And so we'll see the response there. Ultimately, once a ruling is made after these issues are fully briefed, then we can, you know, make and draw conclusions. But I wouldn't really worry about either of those proceedings, you know, the Lindsey Graham one uh, or the Kelly Ward one, based on what the Supreme Court's done yet. We want to see what their actual ruling is once they take the full briefing. And my prediction for both is that the subpoenas will be enforced for Kelly Ward and for Lindsey Graham, because that is what the law is. You shouldn't be involved in insurrections and then claim privileges to try to get around it. Now, speaking of privileges and trying to use privileges to not have to testify, Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff and the former criminal cartel of an administration, the Trump administration, he was ordered to testify today by his local state court uh, in the Fulton County Special Grand Jury uh, Proceedings. So he lives right now, I think he lives in Pickens County. I say I think he lives because you all remember that he was also registered to vote in like North Carolina in some random trailer during the last <laughs> during the last election, or he was registered in like three states at the same time, but he claims he lives in Pickens County. And so in a criminal proceeding, when you want to subpoena somebody from out of state, states have a uniform code for subpoenas out of state. 
And so it's a two-step process. So the process that gets followed here by the Fulton County District Attorney is you go to the judge who's supervising the special grand jury, and that's Judge Robert McBurney. And you go to Judge Robert McBurney and you say, hey, here is the reasons why Mark Meadows is a material witness and why a subpoena should issue. You make that showing. Judge Robert McBurney makes the finding and grants permission to issue this subpoena out of state. But a state or an individual can only be compelled to do things from a court that has jurisdiction over the person. There's got to be personal jurisdiction over the individual. Um, and so that's why step one, if you're trying to subpoena somebody from out of state, you have to get your local judge in within the state where you want the testimony to sign off on it. But then you got to initiate an action in the other state where the person resides. So here, Fawny Willis then went to South Carolina. She went to Pickens County. In fact, she went within Pickens County to the 13th Judicial Circuit in the Court of Common Pleas. The judge there is a judge by the name of Edward Miller. And she asked Judge Edward Miller, hey, look, Judge Robert McBurney signed off on this. Can you sign off on it too and compel Mark Meadows, who lives in your state, to have to fly out and testify in our state? And by the way, we'll pay the costs because that's what you have to do if you're going to make someone leave their state. You'll pay for the travel and you'll pay for the flights and lodging. And Mark Meadows resisted this. And Mark Meadows made a number of arguments. First, Mark Meadows tried to argue that what was taking place in Georgia and Fulton County was not a criminal proceeding. He said that's a civil proceeding, the special grand jury. And that was rejected because the Fulton County Superior Court Judge McBurney has said this is a criminal proceeding. At the end of this, there will be recommendations of people who should be criminally prosecuted. Ultimately, that grand jury is not a grand jury that has the power to indict. The recommendations then go to an actual grand jury, but nonetheless, it is a criminal proceeding that is taking place. So that was one of the arguments. So that argument was knocked out. And the other argument that Mark Meadows tried to make was that he should be cloaked with just total executive privilege. That's why I said leading into this segment, that he's claiming all of these privileges to try to get around his conduct in the insurrection. And what you'll recall with Mark Meadows is that he was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee in around September of 2021. And around that time, he actually turned over like 2,100 text messages. And it looked like he was cooperating or was going to cooperate. And then his deposition was set for like December 7th or 8th or 9th. I forget the specific day. But a day before his deposition was going to be taken, what did Mark Meadows do? He said, I'm out, executive privilege. I'm not participating in this anymore. It was a real surprise. He goes, the January 6th committee is not legitimate. And he filed a lawsuit. That lawsuit has been assigned to a federal judge in Washington, D.C., Judge Carl Nichols, and it's Meadows versus Pelosi, um, asking that the judge find that he doesn't have to testify on the basis of executive privilege. And in that case, 
the January 6th committee has filed what's called a summary judgment motion. So they filed a motion basically to dismiss Mark Meadows' claims of executive privilege, saying, look, you don't get to cloak yourself in executive privilege for the insurrection. That's not a task of the chief of staff to be involved in insurrections. And those are the questions we want to ask him about, his involvement in the insurrection. And so he shouldn't be able to say, oh, this is private communications with the uh, with the president, because that's not what it was. This was what took place at the January, on January 6th was, was Trump's insurrection activity relating to like what the election, his campaign, it had nothing to do with what presidents should ever be involved with. And so that motion for summary judgment in the DC district court, that is now pending. And Judge Carl Nichols, that name might sound familiar to all of you, right? Judge Carl Nichols, Judge Carl Nichols, who is a Trump appointee, but he was the judge who presided over the Bannon case and sentenced Bannon recently. But Judge Carl Nichols is expected to rule on the summary judgment to dismiss Mark Meadows' case any day now. But in any event, the South Carolina state court was not buying those executive privilege arguments, nor was it really their call to make. I mean, I suppose when Mark Meadows sits in front of the Fulton County grand jury and he asks questions, if he wants to assert the executive privilege or make that objection, he could make it. And then ultimately there in Fulton County, you'd have Fawny Willis uh, go and file for contempt or file motions to compel or file motions that it is an invalid uh, claim for Mark Meadows uh, to make there. Um, but the short of it is Mark Meadows is going to happen. He may try to appeal it, but people always ask too. They're like, because I see it in the comments, they go, he's just going to appeal it to Clarence Thomas or you know whatever. But it's our legal system is a bit complex and it may be confusing, but in our system of federalism, we have federal courts and we have state courts. And so when I mention uh, Judge Carl Nichols, that is a federal judge. When I mention the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals or the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, those are courts of appeals in our federal court system that oversee district courts in the states. Courts of appeals is the next layer. And then you have the United States Supreme Court at the federal level, and they hear questions that involve federal issues or where there's federal jurisdiction. That's separate and a different court system, although occasionally if a federal question arises, it could go to a federal court, but the Court of Common Pleas, 13th Judicial Circuit, that, that is a state court, not a federal court. But in South Carolina, there will be a district court or perhaps multiple district courts in various states um, in a state like South Carolina. But for example, the case going on right now, uh, the criminal case involving Donald Trump, um, where the, the Trump organization is a defendant, rather, a criminal defendant, that case is taking place in a Manhattan a state court. That's not happening in a federal court. The Proud Boys, uh, uh, or, or the Oath Keepers trial, rather, or the Proud Boys plea that happened recently, that took place in federal courts, in the D.C. District Court. I know it could get confusing, but here, I suppose if Mark Meadows was going to appeal, he would not be appealing to the United States Supreme Court. He would be appealing through the state court system, is what he would be appealing through. But ultimately, what Judge Edward Miller relied on in ruling that he needs to show 
show up is basically comity, not comedy, comity between the states that here's a judge in Georgia saying that that this witness needs to go there. I'm just going to listen to what the Georgia judge says. The same way, if I say someone should show up here, I want the Georgia judge to listen to me. And so we'll see what happens with Mark Meadows. He's going to have to testify, but I'm sure he's going to try to obstruct, obstruct, obstruct. Everybody get those Q&A questions ready because I am going to take questions here from you and try to answer it on this live edition of Legal A. F. Um, and before talking about the next topic, I do want to tell everybody, though, if you support independent media like this and you want to support uh, shows like this and other shows that we have on the Midas Touch Network, please check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Midas Touch patreon.com slash Midas Touch. There are a number of exclusive membership tiers there that have all of this great exclusive content. We did a Q&A session there today. We've got behind the scenes footage, exclusive podcasts. Don't worry. We're still going to do all the free content here as well on the Midas Touch YouTube show and on our podcast. But we have exclusive content at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. And when you always ask, how can we help Ben? How can we get involved and help grow this platform? Look, our competitors are funded by millionaires and billionaires, and that's the both sides media and the pro-fascist media. And here we have zero outside investors. We take no outside investors. We're only fueled by democracy and by you. So if you want to help out, go to patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Also, you should check out our merch at store.midastouch.com, store.midastouch.com. We have the best pro-democracy gear there, Midas Touch and Legal AF gear. We have the Wheels of Justice gear. We've got Row, Row Your Vote shirts. We've got Rovember shirts. I think we still have the flash sale of row, row your vote in Rovember, 30% off on those shirts. I hope I'm right there. Otherwise, Jordy's going to get mad at me, but I'm pretty confident we still have the 30% off flash sale on those two items. But check it out, store.midastouch.com. And make sure you are subscribed to this YouTube channel and make sure you're subscribed to our audio on Legal AF and that you've left a five-star review. So just search Legal AF wherever you get your podcast, search Legal AF on YouTube. If you're podcast listeners, subscribe on YouTube. If you're a YouTube listener, go on, subscribe on the podcast. It helps with the algorithm. And as it says in the YouTube right now, ask your questions for Ben in the chat. I will try to field some of those questions. But the next topic I do want to talk about, though, is what is going on in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals granted this temporary injunction. They called it an administrative stay, but it was really a temporary injunction. And this was in a lawsuit that was filed by Nebraska and several other GOP-led states. And those states are seeking to completely block and to declare unconstitutional Biden's student debt cancellation program. I mean, it's just such a cruel effort that they are trying to undergo. 
And what the Republicans are doing is they're trying to attack Biden's student debt cancellation program from all sides. So this lawsuit filed by the state of Nebraska is one of literally dozens of Republican lawsuits from all angles. And you may remember, for example, another case that was filed in Wisconsin by a group called the Brown County Taxpayers Association. And they filed one and saying that their taxes would be increased as a result of this targeted student debt cancellation program that was appealed through the Seventh Circuit, which rejected it. There, Amy Coney Barrett was the judge who oversees emergency orders from uh, the Seventh Circuit, and she rejected uh, or denied the relief by the group seeking to cancel uh, Biden's student debt cancellation program. They tried to block Biden's program. And the reason that their lawsuit didn't succeed was on the basis of standing. It didn't even get to the issue of the merits. And the issue of the merits that these groups are arguing is that the HEROES Act, which is a 2003 legislation which calls for the Department of Education and Secretary of Education uh, to do things like cancel student debt in a targeted fashion in case of war or other emergencies, these Republican groups argue the HEROES Act should not give authority for the Department of Education to declare the emergency related to the COVID pandemic and the other emergency claims that the Department of Education made to cancel the student loan debt. But to get to the merits, you first have to start with standing, meaning can you are you even the right person to sue and does the court have jurisdiction? So in that Brown County taxpayers, there is no general taxpayer standing. And so before even getting to the merits, that case was rejected. Now, Nebraska and these other states, which filed their case in the Eastern District of Missouri, that's a federal uh, court, they took a different approach. They said as states that they have standing because when you discharge debt, when you cancel student loan debt, they argue that the states could potentially lose uh, income from taxes if they were to tax the discharge debt as income. They make a few other arguments, but their argument is that the states are losing money when student debt is canceled because they'll lose uh, income from state-related taxes. It's just the ultimate irony here is that these Republican-led states pretend to be all about, oh, lower taxes, lower taxes, but it's no. They want higher taxes for everybody other than billionaires at the end of the day, and they'll be willing to use arguments that they want to tax people when it comes to actually giving relief to the 99.9% .9 of the rest of us and not billionaires and millionaires. And again, I just think this overall effort is just so freaking cruel here. You know, uh, you have under the Trump administration, the deficit was increased by like $7.5 trillion with tax cuts that weren't paid for. And none of these Republican states even like raise a peep about it. Um, you got all of these bailouts for billionaires. And here we're talking about targeted relief. Most people who benefit uh, earn less than $75,000 a year. We're talking about 
uh, canceling debt of like $10,000 and $20,000 for Pell Grants. And here you have the Koch brothers and all the Republican groups. How dare we help real Americans? How dare we help just regular hardworking Americans? But remember, this is not a both sides issue. And that's one of my problems with mainstream media as well, which is these are Republican states and Republican judges who are trying to screw over you. That's just what those are the facts. And you have Democratic led administrations and Democratic appointed judges who are just trying to recognize that it shouldn't just be billionaires and DECA millionaires and millionaires who get all of the relief. And so, anyway, um, in the Eastern District of Missouri, Nebraska and these other GOP led states filed their lawsuits. And it was actually, I believe, a George W. Bush appointed judge there who rejected it and said, You have no standing. Your claim that you're going to tax discharge debt as future income that's hypothetical and speculative. There's no evidence that you're actually doing that. And then these other claims that you're losing money are also speculative or not actually damages from the state. And so these states then filed with the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, who is the judge who oversees emergency applications for the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals? So we have our legal education, right? We know that Clarence Thomas is the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, right? We know Amy Coney Barrett is the seventh, like Alito is the fifth. We know Elena Kagan is the ninth. We've all talked about those today. Kavanaugh is the judge, the justice who will hear emergency applications for the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's not a good sign that Justice Kavanaugh would be the one who would make an emergency application uh, grant or denial after what the Eighth Circuit does. It's also not a great sign that there is, of like I think the 10 judges who sit on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, only one of them is a Democratic appointee. The others are George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Trump appointees. So it's like nine to one. And so we're not going to get a sympathetic panel to the Biden administration and Department of Education here. Uh, but these issues have now uh, been fully briefed. And what the Eighth Circuit did is they temporarily blocked the enforcement or they temporarily blocked uh, Biden's um, student debt cancellation program for from going into effect. And they've temporarily blocked it pending the briefing schedule. And then they could make a more long-term order, potentially either blocking it or denying the relief being requested um, by the states pending the overall appeal. And appeals take a long time. And so if the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal um, eventually grants the relief of these Republican-led states and grants a long-term stay pending their appeal, and the appeal takes a long time, the student debt cancellation program can be halted for a really long time. Um, my advice is this, though, regardless, because there's going to be a lot of activity taking place by the Department of Justice um, who filed their own brief and a lot of activity by the Biden administration. I think close to 25 million people have already applied and given information to the student debt cancellation program. If you haven't, please apply. Make sure you apply. Do not let this scare you away at all. Apply, apply, apply. Um, we'll have to see what the Eighth Circuit does, but 
We have the Department of Justice. They filed their uh, brief. Uh, the Republican-led states, they filed their briefs. And the Department of Justice argued, look, this is a pretty simple issue. These states don't have standing. Think about it. If you're going to claim that these states have standing here and they're claiming they're losing their taxable, um, that they're losing income as a state that they could tax by taxing discharge debt as income, under that theory, states could claim standing on literally every case. And there wouldn't be any case where a state can't get involved in any law that they don't like and basically completely disrupt and destroy the, uh, the ability of federal law to have effect. That would be the impact of it. And then you have the states that are arguing, look, the, the district courts got it wrong. We're damaged. Look at our states. We're, you know, we're, we're coming from you. We're state attorney generals, and we're telling you our income is going to be affected by this de debt cancellation program. And then let's get to the merits. This HEROES Act should not apply uh, to uh, this debt cancellation. This, the HEROES Act was something that was passed around 9-11, and it relates to uh, wartime issues, and and it never was intended to cover the COVID pandemic. That's I don't agree with that. And the authorization uh, in the HEROES Act seems to be broad and directly cover an incident like this, the same way that um, collection on student loans was suspended also in the Trump administration, invoking powers under the HEROES Act, and uh, also that it's also been uh, done the same under the Biden administration. Collection has stopped of the student loans temporarily. Um, so if you can do that, why can't the Department of Education do very targeted uh, student debt cancellation of $10,000 or $20,000 uh, for Pell Grants? And look, the broader issue for me, I guess some people say, well, it's a controversial topic. And uh, I mean, to me, our government has bailed out billionaires and millionaires over and over again. They've gotten tax cuts and rarely is relief given to people like who make less than $75,000 a year. And here we have an opportunity. And really, uh, because of student loan debt, it's really created this logjam of people to become productive actors in our economy. It affects people's ability to buy homes, and to and to engage in a number of other you know activities and so i think that with the student debt relief people can be free to go out there and to and to participate more in the economy and so that's my political view and i just want to be compassionate i want to be helpful to people you know we shouldn't just have this two tier system where all of a sudden we just help billionaires and millionaires and they get bailed out but when it comes to you know targeted student debt relief that that's not um allowed or not acceptable all right so now i'm going into the question and answers i'm looking at the youtube right now um, I'm going to just go at random and see whichever questions I get asked. I'm going to do my best to answer. Let's see. Let's see. Um, which of the many cases against Trump is most likely to ultimately bring him down? This is from Todd Zilla. I think it is the top secret sensitive compartmented information case. I think there's uh, an imminent uh, uh, Trump is an imminent danger there, and it's a home run 
uh, it's a completely home run uh, case there. Um, you have Trump stealing top secret sensitive compartmented information. You have clear evidence of obstruction. You've got lawyers who have filed false declarations. Um, we're learning what these records are, you know, and the classification status of them don't matter for the crimes, espionage act violations, um, obstruction, concealment, and mutilation um, are what the investigation's for. But the timeline of what Trump did in January of 2021, when he stole these records, to him himself cherry picking documents and after being caught with these documents, returning only a cherry picked amount of documents back to the National Archives in January of 2022. And then you have a grand jury subpoena that issues in May. And then Trump has his lawyers and his custodian of records, Evan Corcoran and Christina Bob, do false declarations saying that all of the documents were returned when the documents weren't returned. We have all of these statements that Trump is making uh, uh, publicly. And so to me, also from a strategic standpoint, uh, and, and from a, a prosecutorial standpoint, the jury instructions that would be given in a case like these, in a case like involving the theft of these government records, it's kind of a very basic case. You know, it's not at quite as simple as this, but remember in the Bannon contempt of Congress trial, uh, where the witnesses really only had to hit certain elements. All this extraneous stuff was not brought in because the question was like, look, did you get the subpoena and did you not show up and did you not respond? That's it. That that proves the crime. I mean, here, did you have these records? Did you hold these records? Did you take these records? Did you not return these records? Are you aware of the subpoena? That's it. You know, and then you talk about the obstruction, you have all these other witnesses and we're no, we're learning about like the valet, who Trump's valet at the White House, who also then worked at Mar-a-Lago, who was told to move these boxes, and he was caught on surveillance, and then Christina Bob's declaration. And so there's a lot of good evidence there. And one of the other things there that you see the Department of Justice moving very aggressively is Cash Patel recently testified there in front of the uh, grand jury there. You got so many grand juries going on in uh, the DC courthouse. You've got the grand jury regarding stolen records. You got the grand jury regarding the insurrection. So as Mark Short, uh, the former chief of staff to former Vice President Pence is leaving one of the grand juries because he was just compelled to testify regarding issues that he didn't testify back in July because his executive privilege claims were rejected in these secret grand jury uh, proceedings. As he's leaving, you got you got media watching him and then Cash Patel's coming out and Cash Patel is speaking to the grand jury regarding the stolen document case. And apparently Cash Patel pled the fifth. But Cash Patel, if you look at some of Cash Patel's uh, interviews that he's done, like he's done interviews with Breitbart where he's like, yeah, Trump declassified all these Russian documents and all of these national security documents. I was there when he did it. And then when he's asked the questions, he pleads the fifth. But that's the one that I think um, will be uh, most likely for Trump to be uh, prosecuted. This question, Ben, did you ever consider labor law? I'm referencing a post on Twitter and the legal AF community. Um, I, you know, I, in relation to my own practice, I, I do practice labor law. Um, one of my practice areas when I was 
a more day-to-day daily litigator in the work that I did, um, I would do employment cases. And I think one of the biggest labor law cases in the history of sports law, I was one of the lead litigators on, and that was the Colin Kaepernick NFL case. And I represented Colin Kaepernick. And that was a case that touched directly upon labor law. Um, It had to deal with the collective bargaining agreement and Article 17 provisions, which is the collusion provision of the collective bargaining agreement and employment rights in the sports context with the overall context at that time of a national anthem policy where you had Trump basically saying, get the son of a bitch off the field. And so I do practice labor law. Um, Here's the question. Why is the fifth a get out of jail free card for Trump pubs? Repeal the fifth. Look, I disagree with that. I don't want to repeal the fifth. The fifth amendment is an important constitutional right. The right to invoke the fifth amendment right against self-incrimination from having to testify against yourself. And the purpose of it in normal course is to require the government to gather enough evidence um, on its own without having to like cajole or from the old days, like if they had to go after you and you didn't have a fifth amendment right. And this is one of the issues that our constitutional framers were thinking about the fifth amendment, right? You think about it from a historical perspective, right? Going after the middle ages and when our constitution is, you know, is, is eventually written in the 1700s, um, people were tortured for information because they couldn't invoke the fifth amendment right. And so one of the ideas around the fifth amendment is because of a history of mankind of like torturing people and doing things like that. But is the fifth amendment frequently abused? Yes. But in a civil context, for any money lawsuit or in an injunction lawsuit or a lawsuit seeking something other than criminal. If a party pleads the fifth, an adverse inference can be drawn against the person. And so you could go to the jury in a civil case and say, look, this person pled the fifth amendment. You can assume because they're pleading the fifth that that person was responsible for what they are being accused of. You can't do that in a criminal case. Um, in a criminal case, you can't say, oh, look, that person's not testifying or that person's not pleading the fifth. But a few things regarding the Fifth Amendment. One of the things the government can do with someone like Cash Patel, who could plead the fifth, is you could grant immunity on the specific issue of where you're questioning. It's not like a blanket immunity. It's a targeted immunity. And if you grant immunity to them on that issue, they can no longer plead the fifth because it is a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And if you are given immunity, there is no fear of self-incrimination. You can then be compelled to testify in that situation. One of the other things the Department of Justice can do where they don't want to give immunity is offer a cooperation agreement to somebody like Cash Patel and say, look, we're just going to charge you um, with a lesser crime or we won't charge you if you cooperate with us or we will give you a more lenient uh, sentence. But I do believe the Fifth Amendment right in normal course is an important amendment. It's important that people who are accused of crimes um, in all contexts be given fair trials. Um, But what bothers me and what probably bothers you um, in asking that question is here you have these MAGA extremists, they go on their social media platforms, 
they go and they do um, these rallies and they talk about all of these issues publicly. And then when they're finally asked under oath, when they're not trying to gaslight and manipulate and spread disinformation to their followers, what do they do? They then plead the fifth, 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 fifth. Um, but ultimately, pleading the Fifth Amendment, though, also doesn't uh, stop you from getting records um, that are not subject to you know, any other uh, privilege. Um, but look, I think the Fifth Amendment is an important, um, is an important uh, constitutional amendment. And I think in normal course, the work of criminal defense lawyers is very important. And I do think that we should have a healthy skepticism. We, we shouldn't just embrace and accept everything that the government says, and we shouldn't accept everything the police say. We shouldn't accept everything the Department of Justice says. We shouldn't accept, I mean, we should have a healthy skepticism for, for power sometimes. But at the end, we have to recognize the truth and the facts before us and draw distinctions between the truth and the facts of what Merrick Garland is doing and saying and what Donald Trump is doing and saying, what MAGA extremists and the lies and their phony declarations and their false declarations and their constant gaslighting. But we can view these issues through... Uh, an intellectual lens and put on our thinking caps and actually assess these issues and ultimately come to the conclusion, no matter how you analyze it, that these Trump MAGA extremists are criminals and need to be held accountable and that they are cowardly as heck for pleading the fifth repeatedly, repeatedly. All right, let me see if I can get to... Um, I, let me see if I can get to more questions. Susan Fleming says, now I'm confused. You said Meadows would appeal to the state. Isn't he trying to get out of testifying in the same case as Graham in Fulton County? Graham ultimately appealed to SCOTUS in that case. Different issues there. So what Lindsey Graham's lawsuit is about is a constitutional argument, right? Lindsey Graham is saying that under the United States Constitution, he is a federal employee. He is a senator. The speech and debate clause of the United States Constitution prevents, he argues, senators from having to uh, testify in these proceedings. So that's why it is a federal issue that is in the overall dispute here. Does the speech or debate clause apply? And where there is a federal dispute, a federal issue like speech and debate clause, that goes to federal courts. Now, ultimately, the federal court ruled that the speech and debate clause does not apply. The speech and debate clause does not apply. That's why it's going to the Supreme Court. But ultimately, with that finding, on the day-to-day -day objections that could be made when uh, Lindsey Graham testifies, you still have, and this is where it gets a little confusing, but I hope I'm addressing the confusion a little bit there. There is a state court judge in Georgia in Fulton County, Judge Robert McBurney, who's overseeing a state criminal court proceeding. So as it relates to state procedure and as it relates to state law issues, McBurney, the state law judge, would be the one who makes that call. But because Lindsey Graham's claim is under a federal rule, under a federal constitutional provision, the speech and debate clause, 
I don't have to testify. There's something what's called the supremacy clause under the United States Constitution, where a federal law trumps state law, and I hate using the word trumps, um, in certain situations. And here, that's what Lindsey Graham's argument was, petitioning the federal court my federal rights, which are supreme to the state court rights, preclude me as a federal employee, a, a senator of South Carolina from having to testify there. That's why that goes there. On the other hand, when it comes to Mark Meadows, there is no, Mark Meadows is not invoking a speech and debate clause privilege. He's not invoking a federal right. If Mark Meadows invokes some federal right, Mark Meadows could potentially petition to a federal court and say, hey, this federal right is being impacted. Can you make a ruling? And a federal court could jump in and make a ruling. And then that goes ultimately to the, that could go to the Supreme Court. But ultimately, Supreme Court of the United States can also resolve a state issue where the state issue conflicts with federal law and where an issue addresses whether a federal law is supreme to a state law, then there is a situation where a ruling or where a ruling by a state's highest court violates our United States Constitution. The Supreme Court can hear those cases as well um, from the highest state court. So I know that could be a little confusing, but there are a number of paths to the uh, Supreme Court, but that's why Lindsey Graham filed in federal court because he was invoking a federal right. And there is no federal issues yet being invoked in this state uh, uniform state subpoena system that sent the subpoena from Georgia, Fulton County to Pickens County. So Susan, I hope that helped explain that. And we definitely got in the weeds there. Um, what's other question? Uh, can blue states sue for damages, loss, of tax revenue for PPP loans? It's a great question. Um, the short answer is, is no, they shouldn't be able to. Um, but the same analysis that these uh, Republican states are using for standing uh, here uh, in when it comes to the cancellation of student loan, you would think if that was the case, then couldn't any state just sue the PPP program and say, look, we've got standing. This is a, this is affecting and harming our state. The, the massive fraud that exists in the PPP program has harmed our states and it's harmed our ability to conduct business here. Therefore, we want you to cancel the PPP program. Th that would be a potential impact here of the ruling if the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals rules in favor of these Republican states, because these states would have basically limitless standing to do um, whatever they wanted to do and have standing in any case. Ben, how long do you think Ms. Haba has before she needs her own lawyer? When that happens, who do you think is the next in line uh, for Trump? I want to read the rest part. I mean, I think honestly, she needs a lawyer now. Um, she was, uh, she's in a lot of jeopardy. The statements that she's made, uh, publicly, um, are, uh, have all been false. Um, it could be construed by some as attempting to obstruct the efforts of the department of justice. You know, she filed that other lawsuit. Uh, remember they filed that, uh, Rico conspiracy lawsuit against like Hillary Clinton and all these other, um, uh, like. 40 other people in the Southern District of Florida, and they tried to get 
uh, Eileen Cannon to be the judge. They try to go judge shopping to get Eileen Cannon when they filed this like RICO conspiracy lawsuit. That was like 200 pages of gibberish. Um, there, her, not only did her case get dismissed there, um, but the federal court uh, reserved jurisdiction for potential Rule 11 sanctions. And Rule 11 sanctions are sanctions for um, severe misconduct by lawyers putting forward bad faith arguments when she tried to sue Clinton and all these other people. So not only did that case get dismissed, but she's in the hot seat there in that case and could potentially have hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in sanctions. Let me see if I got any more questions. I'll try to get to uh, one more if there are any others. I don't see any other questions. So, okay, without seeing any other questions, I want to thank everybody for uh, watching uh, this episode of Legal AF. Appreciate you all. It was, wasn't was as easy doing this effort solo uh, without Michael Popak and without Karen Friedman Agnifilo, but uh, it was great to spend the time with you all. Make sure you go to patreon.com slash Midas Touch. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Midas Touch. Um, we really would appreciate you helping out there. We're not funded by millionaires or billionaires. We literally have zero outside investors. And so if you want to help out, that would be one big way that you can help out grow this platform, patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Also check out store.midastouch.com for the best pro-democracy gear. We got Rovember shirts, row, row your vote shirts, convict or convict 45 shirts and more. Check that out at store.midastouch.com. And also make sure you hit the subscribe button right now on this YouTube channel. And for all of our YouTube watchers, please, if you haven't already, subscribe to Legal AF and also subscribe to the Midas Touch audio podcast. Subscribe to Legal AF audio podcast, wherever you get your podcast, search Legal AF. And please leave a five-star review. It is helpful to the algorithm. It goes a long way. Please go check it out. Um, we would really appreciate you doing that and leaving a five-star review. Until next time, I am Ben Micellis from Legal AF. Special shout out to the Midas Mighty. Midas Mighty.